whether this is a difficult season in your life, whether this is a time where you are far away, where you feel like you don't sense or want to experience the presence of God in your life, whatever your situation is today, I want to invite you to just pray a prayer like this to say, Jesus, speak to me. God, give me ears that will receive. Soften my heart today. Maybe you're here and there's a sin that you're being controlled by and that you've not dealt with. Ask God to give you power and strength today to deal with that. Maybe you're here and you're broken because of someone else's sin. And you don't know the next step to take. Ask God to speak to you today. Maybe you're here today and you're just flat. I'm just here. There's nothing really going on. There's nothing good, nothing bad. I'm just kind of existing. Invite God to speak to you. Jesus, open the eyes of our hearts. In the name of Jesus, the Lord and Savior of the universe, we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And we're going to cross-reference that with Psalms 51 because those two passages of scriptures, I believe, were meant to go together. And uh, so we'll talk about that in just a moment. So we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 12. We are completing our series on the life of David, the life of King David, the, the, the from tragic, from triumph to tragedy. And uh, we are completing that today. And again, I want to remind you, the Bible has more to say about the life of David. There, We have a greater narrative of extent other than Jesus himself. The Bible has more to say about the character of David than any other character in all of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. The New Testament alone references either one of David's psalms or scriptures or quotes David himself or makes mention of David 57 different times. So that's why we've taken this time to really understand the life of David. For for us to really understand the New Testaments and the references that are made to David, the quotes that are made and are again uh, referenced in the New Testament, we need to understand the life of David. So that's exactly what we've done. So as we do that again this morning, as we conclude this message, uh, I, I want to invite you to really hear some things. We're going to kind of go to, go fast and we're going to cover a lot of Scripture. But if you'll remember last week where we were, David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. And not only has he committed adultery with Bathsheba, He's tried to get her husband to come back, one of his mighty men. This wasn't just any soldier, just any man. This was one of his mighty men. This is one of the men who took a vow to protect David when he was running from Saul in the woods to protect him with his very life. And we also know that his her father, uh, or excuse me, the father was David's bodyguard and the grandfather was Ahithophel, who was David's counsel, political counselor. So this family is in deep. This is not someone David doesn't know. And so David, because he's become so hardened in his sin, in his pride, his power, his money. You know, it's interesting. David didn't just get here. We see a David who, when he was a 14, 15 year old boy, was willing to take on a giant with a slingshot. He had the courage and the Spirit of God upon him because he honored and loved God so. But now, here's a man 
who's come to the place where not only will he commit adultery, but he wants to cover it up so bad he'll kill a friend. And others die because when Uriah is ordered to go to the battle line, there are others that go with him and they die. And when the report comes back to David, David says, that's war. And we don't see any penance. We don't see any confession. How does a man get that hard where not only will he commit adultery, but then he will lie and literally murder to cover it up? And this is exactly where David is at this moment. This is where his heart is. And you know how it comes? It comes from years and years of success. Things going well. He's become very powerful. He's defeated all his enemies. He's got plenty of finances. He has people who are telling him how great he is all the time. He probably has people who are complaining. And he probably has come into that entitlement mentality where he says, well, look at all I've done. Look what I've done for this nation. And in fact, he was the great King David. None will be regarded more greatly than him even in the future. There's only been one up to this point, And everybody would pretty much agree, okay, you're better than Saul. All right, and and he's going to be the standard by which every king will be judged. He begins to believe the press. And you know, all the complaints I have to listen to, all the stuff I have to do, all that I've had to do, and you just build it up and you start to think, I'm the man and I deserve it and it'll be okay. And that's where David is at this point. He's been sending people out to do what he wanted, to cover his sin, to entice his sin, to bring the sin to his bedroom, and then to have other people killed. He's been using his power and authority. And that word sent we talked about last week. He kept sending people. But now we start in chapter 12 in verse 1. And now the table turns. It's a pivotal point. Now God will send Nathan. Nathan is the prophet. He is the primary individual that God uses to speak to David and to the nation. It is literally how God speaks in that day. They probably have some copies of the Torah at this point that David studies. But the other way the word is given is through the prophet Nathan. And so now we pick up in chapter 12 and in verse 1. And we see that it will go just like this. The Lord sent Nathan to David. At this point, God's doing the sending. Now the true authority comes through, who's really in control. And when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had a very large number of sheep. In cattle, But the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb he had bought. And he raised it and he grew it up with him and his children. Now, what's interesting here is the Hebrew irony is really pretty amazing. Because what we're going to see in verse 4 and what we're going to see in this text is really a picture of of Uriah and Bathsheba. Bathsheba is the lamb. The rich man is David. And the poor man is Uriah. There's one you land. You've got a wealthy man who has hundreds of sheep and cattle. Has everything that he would ever need. 
But there's a poor man who just has one little ewe lamb. And because he can take that lamb, he does. The Bible says here, see the picture. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. He shared his food. They drank from the same cup and even slept in his arms. Bathsheba. You see the story? Uriah. And now a traveler, verse 4, now a traveler. Incidentally, the word used right here in the Hebrew is the same word used in 2 Samuel chapter 12 in verse 2 when it said, And David walked around on the roof of his palace the night that he saw Bathsheba. Same word, it's just a little different nuance interpreted as walked earlier in, in and interpreted as traveler here. So same Hebrew word. Now a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb. It was almost like a pet. They kept it in the house. They fed it from the hand. And they belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for the one who had come. So you see what's happened now. The, the rich man has taken the poor man's lamb, and he's prepared it. He didn't want to take one of his for whatever reason. Maybe he thought it was cuter. Maybe he just didn't want to go to the expense. Maybe just because it was there, he decided. And because he could do it, because he had the power, he took that one little lamb. And David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. Isn't that interesting? David hears the story about a little lamb, which, as we know, as the readers, is representative of Bathsheba and Uriah. And he says, whoever took that sheep deserves to die. Now, that's a pretty over-the-top response for taking a sheep. I mean, even today. I mean, if you kill somebody's dog, you might go to jail, but we don't kill people. For taking the pet. Okay? It's over the top. And in that culture, particularly a rich man taking a poor man, that wouldn't happen. Now, they may have to pay, you know, fourfold, tenfold. They may have to pay a big fine and restore. But you wouldn't kill the man. Why does David react so violently? Why does he react in such a manner? Do you know why? Because of his own sin. I remember when I was at a, one of my, my second church, I remember I was there one time. I was a youth pastor, and uh, we went to youth camp. And um, you know, we we did youth things. We had music, and we had a talent show, and we had the you know teenage boys were being teenage boys that night. I remember this lady coming up to me and and her husband, and they were just really disturbed. First of all, the drums. Oh, how can you have drums in the house of the Lord? And you know, and and uh, some of you, I know, some of you asked that too. But anyway, it was just going on and on. And I'm just going, really? Oh, it sounds like rock music. I just feel like the God, how can God be honored? And our spirits are so grieved. And I mean, giving me all the holy talk, you know, and then, and then the teenage boys, what, what they did was inappropriate after the service in their little, in their little bunk time. And, you know, they were being teenage boys, you know, they were making sounds and those kind of things, you know, and it was just all, you know, and I had to just, we need, we've got to address this. This is how can God, how can we expect the spirit of God move in this camp? And I'm just thinking, this is over the top. What's, first of all, I, I, I got convicted for a moment and then I just go, what, you're just weird, you know, and, um, 
And so I remember getting back and I got another call conversation. They want to talk about it some more. And, you know, just that serious face. And I remember talking to my my mentor who was on staff there. I said, what what do I do? What is the deal? He goes, you know, what I found is usually when people react like that over something small, he said, there's usually something in their life big that they're kind of hiding or they're not really dealing with. And I go, well, whatever. I mean, I thought, well, I think these people are just, you know, really uptight and they ought to go to, you know, to a Quaker church or something. I, I don't know, you know. And so, sure enough, doggone it, if he wasn't right, I mean, I'm not even going to tell you what they were doing. I mean, it, it was so over, they were over the top and they end up leaving, you know, the, the woman has four kids and ends up running off with a teenage boy. And I mean, it's just like the craziest thing I'd ever heard. And yet they were worried about drums. You know, and and it was the exact situation here. Kill the man. He stole the lamb. That's what David's done. Because I don't want to deal with my sin. I'm going to project it over here. Because I'm if, if I deal with that, I, I just let's let's look at somebody else for a moment. Those people should not be like that. Let's focus in on their sin and let's kill them. I tell you, let's blow them all up. Because then we won't have to deal with my sin. We're blowing other people up. And what happens here in this text? What happens next? Well, it's pretty interesting what happens next. And, and, and matter of fact, there's another part we need to read. He says, he must pay for the lamb four times over, which he will, by the way, because he did such a thing with no pity. And there's the real kicker right there. Not only did he commit adultery, not only did he lie and cover it up, not only did he kill your right. Not only did other people die, not only now does he go get Uriah and bring her into, I mean, Bathsheba and bring her to the house, but we never see an ounce of pity. We never see any confession. We never see any repentance. We never see any sorrow. No pity. David is, in fact, indicting himself because there was no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you the man. We talked about that last week. That's where it originally came from. You the man. Okay? Wasn't a good thing. You didn't want to be the man. He was the man. Hey, can I say this? The problem here is this. Is that David has... Wandered so far from God, he said no. He's been so full of himself after years and years of compliments, years and years of power and authority. And no one, it appears, has really spoken to him. And if they have, he's not listened. And so, first of all, I think it's imperative that we have Nathans in our life. I mean, I hope your spouse, you give them permission to talk to you and, and be honest with you. You know, my wife will tell me things sometimes, she'll confront me with things. And, you know, and because I'm such a godly spiritual leader, because I'm the pastor of this church, I usually go, no, I don't. That's not, you don't understand. You don't even know what you're talking about. That's because I'm so mature. And uh, and that's the way about, you know, about 70% of the time I respond like an idiot, you know, and, and I respond to her like that. And, you know, and 80% of the time she's right. Or maybe probably 90. Okay, 90% of the time she's right. All right? But I don't like it. I don't like for people to tell me that I'm wrong. Or that I need to look at things from another perspective. 
But I need it. I need it bad or I become just like David. And so do you. Are you a person that no one can tell him anything? No one can correct? No one can give um, instruction? No one can give advice? No one can say, would you consider? Would you think about it? That's exactly probably where David was. And that's why Nathan had to come and tell him this big story. So that he could awaken his heart. So he could awaken the conviction of his heart. Because David has been so far away. You know, there's a good word. Sometimes the best scenario is not to just come and boom, hit somebody over the head with a pan. Sometimes we've got to ask questions, don't we? We've got to give them scenarios and get them to understand. And that's exactly what Nathan does. But Nathan has the authority, has been given the permission to speak into his life. Who outside of your spouse have you given permission to be a Nathan in your life? Who have you said, you know what, if you see something in me that you notice is not right, say something to me. Call me on it. Keep me accountable. Say something to me. Who have you given that kind of permission to in your life? Just say, you know, I, I I need you to, I don't know if you've noticed something about you. If you don't, you need to give somebody that authority. You need to get some of that blessing. You need to say, have a friend or a neighbor, somebody in the church. That's one of the reasons that we have small groups and we encourage you to be in them. Men, discipleship groups, mentoring. You need, somebody needs to be able to speak that word to you. We all need Nathans in our life. It's, it's, I know some of us think we're so good that we don't need it. You need it more than anybody else. Okay. You're exactly where David was when you think, I don't need that. Okay. Hello, David. How are you doing today? Okay, that's where he was. That's that's how he got to this place. And so, you know, the rest of the story. This is what the Lord God's of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from the hands of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And, and if this had been too little, I would have given you more. But why did you despise the word of the Lord. Despise really, really is the antonym for glory. Why did you unweight? Why did you dilute? Why did you do the antithesis of bringing me glory? Why did you look at my word and take it so lightly is literally what the Hebrew is saying. Why did you take me so lightly, my word, my authority so lightly by doing what is evil in his eyes? In other words, the common man, the average man, godly man, sees a woman, we all notice, she's attractive, and then it needs to end right there. Some may look for a couple of moments. They, probably, they shouldn't, but some may look for a couple of moments. But can I tell you, it's a whole different thing to go, all right, let's go get her. And that's where David is. Because, you know what? Nobody's saying anything, and if they are saying, he's not listening. He doesn't listen. He doesn't receive. That's where he is. Why did you despise the word? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says out of your own household. I'm going to bring calamity upon you before your very eyes. I will take your wives and give them to someone who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And we know, in fact, that's prophetic. That does happen with Absalom. And then David said to Nathan, 
he, he, he does it correctly from this point on. He repents. He confesses. I have sinned against the Lord. He, he recognizes. I have sinned against the Lord. And this is where Psalms 51 comes from. This is where many scholars say it came into play right here. Psalms 51. I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sins and you're not going to die. I'm wrong. I've sinned. Forgive me. And we're going to look at Psalm 51. And I think it's expounded even more there. And, and the Bible says something very interesting right there. It says, okay, you're forgiven. God is not going to remember your sin. And you're, it's not going to be held against you. Legally responsible. Because the, the capital, the, the punishment for death, for murder, was death at that time. And so you're being forgiven. The Bible literally says, the Lord has taken away your sin. It's removed, and you're not going to die. And then he says, but by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contentment, and the son born to you will die. Now, that's a hard passage. That's one of those passages people look at and go, oh, that's the kind of thing that drives me crazy about the Bible. There goes God's killing babies right there. That's what's going on. But, you know, what's interesting is, first of all, the Bible says you're forgiven. And when God uses that term there, it's not going to be held against you. It, it's like, and it is, God has forgotten. He's removed that sin. So he says it in two different ways here. First of all, he says, it's been taken away and you're not going to die. You're not going to have to pay the penalty. Because the penalty, the wages of sin is death. But, let me tell you this, the blessing is being removed. I'm not going to have a protective covering over your child. And, and let me say this, now we're into a, to an area that I don't know. I, I don't know, I'm speculating completely. But we know he's been forgiven. And when you're forgiven, there's not retribution. So, but the child is going to die. Now that's not retribution. That's not God, I'm going to punish you by killing your child. You know, that would be, that's, that would be a little hard to swallow. And some may interpret that way. I, on the other hand, when, when God says you're forgiven, that doesn't mean that the consequences of sin might not carry out. What was going to happen is still going to happen. And in God's economy and in God's sovereignty authority, this was going to happen. And it's not going to be stopped. It's not going to be withheld. You are forgiven and there is no penalty. But I cannot give you the blessing. I cannot protect at this point. Okay? So let's go to Psalm 51, one of the greatest psalms in all of the Bible. One that's used very, very frequently. And I, I would even go as far as to encourage you to use this as a prayer of confession that you might read. Sometimes I just read this myself. I just make this my prayer to God Almighty. And this is where this psalm would have come from. At this point, David has been confronted with his sin. He recognizes his sin. And he is broken over his sin. And he sits down and he writes this psalm out. This was a journal entry probably at first. He's writing out because he's just pouring his heart out to God. And later it's converted into a song, so to speak. A prayer, uh, so to speak. And so David is doing this not for soteriology purposes. In other words, this is not he's not trying to show people how to come into salvation. He's just pouring out his heart over his sin at this point. <clears throat> and as he pours out his heart 
He's not worried about what word did I choose? Did I choose the right King James words when I prayed? He's not thinking that because it's just out of his heart. Matter of fact, if we go back and read the rest of the chapter in chapter 12, the Bible says that he's on the ground, literally. He's on the ground and he's crying out to God. Have you ever been in that place where you're on the ground? You're literally on the ground and you can't get up. That's where David is. He's crawling around on the ground. He's got his sackcloth and ashes on. And he's crying out to God because he is broken. And here's the real truth. Many of you have been in that spot where you've been on the, I mean, literally on the ground, literally on the floor, and you feel like you can't move because it hurts so bad, because it's so overwhelming. Many of you have been there because you've lost a child or you've lost a loved one or something so traumatic has happened in your life. You've been there. And, if you know, here's the sad truth. If you live long enough... Every one of us at some point are on the ground. We're on the ground crying out. And that's where David is. David's not thinking, I'm writing theology and Bible today. That's not where he is. He's on the ground pouring his heart out. And this is what he says on the ground. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. It, it, it's that hesed love term that we talked about a few weeks ago. The covenant, God, that you made, the covenant love that you've given to me. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. He actually gives three different forms of, of the word sin, that the three primary uses of sin in the Bible. And he's saying, I know I've sinned against you. I know I've lied, I've stealed, I've murdered, I've committed adultery, God. I recognize these things. <clears throat> this is a picture of a broken and contrite heart, which the Bible says God will not turn away. And then he says, verse four, which sometimes is very difficult for, for a lot of people, for a lot of us, for me, my, myself included. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you have I sinned, God. And only what does he mean against you and you only? I mean, what about Bathsheba? I mean, what, is against you? what about Uriah? What about those men who got killed? What about all the people David pulled in to pull this shenanigan off? Doesn't, weren't they sinned again? Absolutely. But who is David talking to right now? He's writing in his prayer journal. He's crying out to God. And long before physical adultery ever occurred with David, spiritual adultery had already happened. He's going back to the root of where this all began. Because I have hardened my heart against you, God. Because I began to chase other things. And I forgot about you. Spiritual adultery happened long ago. And I'm going back. And God, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to confess that this is where it all began. So, Lord, against you. And I've done what's evil in your sight. It's not necessarily what society thinks. It's not what other people think. It's not what my culture says. It's not what the law of the land. It's what you said. It's your sight. And so, Lord, forgive me. For I've sinned against you. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew, a better translation would be, especially you I have sinned against. So the Bible says, so that you are proved right when you speak and are justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth and sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inward part. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. He's crying out to God. He's pouring his 
hard out. And he says, God, because this has not been true of a man who has done all the things again. Again, it's it's one thing to look. It's another thing to lust. It's another thing to commit adultery. But he just keeps going and going and going, thinking he can get away with it. And there's no pity. There's no remorse. There's no confession. But now there is. And now he's saying, God, I recognize. Create in me a pure heart, God, because I've not had one. And renew a steadfast spirit within me because I've not had one. Lord, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit away from me because that's exactly what I've done to you. I've had an unholy spirit in me. It's been my flesh. It's been my pride. It's been my ego, my thirst for power, my thirst for lust. That's what's been guiding me. And I have casted you away. And I have removed your Holy Spirit. And now I'm saying, God, don't do to me what I've done to you. The way I've pushed you away. As the Bible talks about in 1 Thessalonians 5, um, 19. Don't harden your heart. Don't quench the Spirit. As the Bible talks in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4. Where the Bible talks about having a seared conscience. How do you get a seared conscience? Well, obviously David had one because he kept saying no to God. He kept sinning and getting away with it, thinking it was okay, and that he was the authority. He was the power. He presumed upon the mercies of God. So this is where David's been. So this is not a statement of salvation. He's not thinking about salvation. He's thinking about this is where I've been. This is who I am. This is what I've been doing. So God, restore to me. Lord, restore your spirit, restore your presence, restore the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit. And Lord, sustain me. That's what he's talking about. That's what's happening there. Let's go back to um, 1 Samuel chapter 12 and finish that. So, after Nathan has gone home, the Lord has struck the child and Uriah's wife and is born to David and he's become ill. And David pleaded with God for the child and he fasted and went to his house and spent three, spent the nights lying on the ground like we talked about. So he's literally on the ground. And the elders of the household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any of the food. And on the seventh day, the child died and David's servants were afraid to tell him the child was dead for they thought, while the child was living, we spoke, but David would not listen. How can we tell him now? He may do something desperate. And David noticed his servants were whispering among themselves and realized the child was dead. And he said, is the child dead? And they said, yes, he is dead. Then David got up off the ground. We see that David has been lying on the ground for a week. He's been wrestling with this. He's been crying out. But now it's happened. The worst has happened. The worst has occurred. And it's interesting, some of you are here today and you're still on the ground. Something's happened, whether it be in your family, in your work, personally, and you're on the ground. And you've been wrestling with it. You've been crying out to God. But can I tell you, He wants you to get up. He wants you to get up. It's okay to be on the ground. Can I tell you that? Sometimes we need to be on the ground. David needed to be on the ground. And when we are broken, whether by our sin or by life itself, it's okay to get on the ground sometimes. It's all right to say, I've fallen and I can't get up right now. And that's a time where Nathan's need to come and help you get up. Family help you get up. And you wrestle with it. It's hard. 
But then, notice what David does. It's happened. I've been on the ground. I've been wrestling. And then David got up from the ground. He stood up. The pain wasn't gone. The situation wasn't changed. But he decided it's time to get up. He got up. And after he had washed, he put on lotions and changed his clothes. You see, he's had on mourning, on sackcloth and ashes. He's had on clothes of mourning. How we wear black. He's been wearing his black clothes. And he decides, I'm, I'm getting up. I'm changing my clothes. I'm taking a bath. I'm cleaning up. And then what does he do? Then he went. It says that he changed his clothes and then he went to the house of the Lord and worshipped. It almost feels contrary to what we want to do or what we feel. I, I, I get up. I wash myself off. I, I change my clothes. And, and, and again, this, there's, a, there's a picture being given here. I'm going to quit trying to demonstrate and personify a picture of I can't go on anymore. Life has stopped. Let me say this. We all know people and we've all been there where we felt like we couldn't go anymore. It's over. I'm never getting off the ground. But can I tell you, that's not where God wants you to live. I am not telling you that you will get a magic word and a magic potion and it'll all be better. I am telling you that God wants to redeem it. And I am telling you, those of us who know the Lord and trust him, he will redeem that either here or in heaven. It will get redeemed. And so David understands this truth. And so he gets up. He washes himself off. He begins. To, he reengages in life. He goes back to work, so to speak, and he goes to worship. I'm going to worship God, even though you know I'm broken, even though you know I'm hurting, even though you know I feel like I have been devastated and life will never be the same. God I'm going to worship you. I'm going to trust that you will redeem this somehow and that life can go on. That's where David is. That's where some of you are today. And then he went to his own house. And they served him food and he ate. He reengaged. He recognized there were hope. And then here's the hope that's given to him. His servants asked him, why are you acting like this? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now the child is dead and you get up and eat. And he answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept and I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now he is gone. Why should I fast now? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. That passage right there, I love that verse 22. I will go to him, but he will not go to me. It's a great concept and it's a great understanding when David doesn't have a fully developed understanding of what heaven will be. They don't understand. But here's what he knows. He knows that one day he will be with that child again. This is not the end. This is not forever. This is not the last chapter. It's the next chapter. And and now he's being pulled out for today. But eventually we will be together. It's a word of hope. And it's still hard, but it's a word of hope that this is not eternal. And then he says, then, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went to her and lay with her and she gave birth to a son and named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him because the Lord loved him. He sent word through Nathan and the prophet named him Jedediah, loved by the Lord. God said, I, I hear your pain. I see your pain. One day you're going to be again, but. 
not today. And then God gave him a symbol. And as you know, this doesn't always happen. But he gave him a new opportunity and said, I want to give you hope because I love you. That's the word. Because I love you. I want to give you some practical things here this morning because I know this is, we can stir all this up and go, okay, great. Now what do I do? Let me give you some practical things because a lot of times when you're looking at the David and Bathsheba scenario here, and I've got some copies outside if you want to pick up one. Sometimes it's just somebody has sinned against you. Sometimes you need to ask forgiveness. Sometimes you need to accept forgiveness. Sometimes you need to grant forgiveness. Sometimes restoration. Let's talk about the process of forgiveness. First of all, confess your sin. Confess it like David did. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, confess your, confess your sins to God Almighty. It, it just makes it very simple. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Number two, recognize the harm that's been done. Recognize it. Don't minimize it. Recognize it. Number three, take responsibility. This is where a lot of people fall. Yeah, but, oh, but no, take responsibility. Man up, woman up, take responsibility if you've caused the pain. Commit to try to not repeat the offense and put some practical stops in there. Make practical restoration. And what I mean by that is if you've cost monetarily, make it up. Emotionally, then seek to ask forgiveness and seek to say, what is it? What can I do? What are some things I can do? Write a letter, whatever it is. Do whatever it takes. Ask forgiveness. You can't force them, but you can ask and then forgive yourself. You don't get to forgive yourself till you do the other things, okay? That doesn't count. You're not broken and contrite. You're like David. Oh, I got caught. Sorry about that. No, if God has to break you, he will. C-I-E, 1 John chapter 3. But ask forgiveness and then forgive yourself. Secondly, let's look. What about when I'm the one that's been offended? What do I do then? Well, practical steps for forgiving when you're the offended. First of all, learn what forgiveness is, okay? Sometimes we have this picture in our mind, forgiveness. They just get off and... And I'm left with all the suffering and all the pain, and now I have to act like I love them and go back just the way it was. Not necessarily. Okay. Let me tell you what forgetting is not. Forgetting. First of all, forgiving is not necessarily forgetting. I know we sing songs and we like to say that, but we're not God. You're going to remember. If somebody runs over your child, you're not going to forget that. Okay. Somebody takes your spouse, you don't forget that. All right. So it's not necessarily forgetting. It's not holding the charge against them. It's not seeking retribution, okay? So it's not necessarily forgetting or excusing. You know, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure they were under a lot of stress and they did this and that. And I can see how that's not excusing, all right? It doesn't even necessarily mean full reconciliation, that things are exactly like they were. I trust you in every instance before, okay? That's not necessarily forgiveness. Forgiveness is I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to pick it up and hit you with it. I'm not going to keep bringing it up. I'm not going to use it against you. I'm releasing you from the penalty. Secondly, clean your mind. Start off each morning and say, God, I need you to just cleanse my mind. Help me to think your thoughts. I, I, I know for me sometimes just reading over Philippians chapter 4, starting with verse 4 through 19, and just asking God to reset my mind each morning. Uh, practice forgiveness in little things with other people. When people cut you off, when the waiter gets your food order wrong, Little things, just practice forgiveness. Because if you can't forgive there, you're not going to forgive anywhere else either. 
So make it a habit to begin to practice forgiveness. Forget the shoulds. You know, they, they just should not have done that. Try to get that out of your mind. They shouldn't have said that. That should have never happened. Should, should, that shouldn't have happened. They should have done this. They should have let it go. Let the shoulds go. Race them. Recognize this. Recognize the cost that resentment's going to cost you. It, you can make them pay. That's true. But you're going to pay more. Because the pain, and it, it's literally like you're just going to keep reopening the gunshot wound. And you're going to pour salt in it every day. So let it go. And here's one I think that I was, t- I was talking, I actually interviewed several people in our congregation right here that have been through adultery and, and then restored their relationship. Several people who've gone through this and not a one-time deal, but a long-term thing. One of the things they said, you know, um, I, I did is I, I wrote it out. I just simply wrote it all out, kind of like they, I, I wrote it all out and then I destroyed it. It's just kind of therapeutic to just kind of write it down. I'm talking to one guy who was the offender. And he said, he said, when things really finally began, we started to make a turn is when I sat down and I wrote out, here's all the, here's what I've done. I'm so sorry. Here's what I will do. He said that was a turning point. And remember this, the forgiveness is a win-win. God wins and you win because you get to start life over again. Healing gets to come in. All right. And then lastly, the hard part. What about when restoring broken relationships? Not all relationships can be restored. And can I say this? One of the one of the people told me this. I said, "Hey, look, tell them this that um, you can always you can always forgive, but you can't always come back. You can always forgive, but you can't always come back. In other words, be careful to make that choice to say, no, 'No, I'm gone,' because you might not get the opportunity ever. You might have lost it both ways. Okay, so you can forgive, but you can't always come back. So Be willing to fight. Be willing to make the hard choice. Not because you feel it. Not because you think they deserve it. But because of the truth of God's Word. Because of what Christ has done for us. Okay? So, don't do this Jiminy Cricket thing. Always let your conscience be your guide. Go by your feeling. Because you won't. Because you'll think, no way, Jose. I'm not doing that. Forget it. They're wrong. There's no way. I'm not forgiving. I'm not doing that again. And that, there's no way I'm, I'm, I'm done. You know what? If it's continual adultery, you quote, have that right, but make sure you think about that because you won't, you can damage it and you can put yourself in a place where it can never be restored, which might be the greater pain than you could ever imagine for everybody, not just the two of you. Okay. So think about that. Remove the story from your speech. In other words, quit telling the story. Nobody else needs to hear it. You don't need to tell them again. Commit to say, all right, I'm going to stop telling this story. Number two, God, I'm going to ask you to reboot my attitude. And just like we talked about a while ago, you're going to have to daily say, God, reboot my spirit, reboot my attitude. Because that junk's going to come in each day. And those memories are going to come in each day. Release the past. That's what forgiveness is. I'm I'm letting go of the past. And we're starting. And I'm going to reopen the future. Okay? It doesn't mean, again, everything's exactly what, but I'm going to be open to a potential future. And then the very hardest thing, and everybody I've spoken to says this is the hardest, reconstructing the relationship. What do you mean by reconstruct? Well, it's like rebuilding. It's like your house burned down, but now you're going to have to rebuild it, and you don't rebuild it the same way. There are new bricks this time, and you're going to have to start over on the foundation. You have to clean it out, and you're going to have to put brick by brick by brick. So many times people just want to jump back. Okay, you said I'm forgiven. Let's get right back here. You don't get to do that. I'm sorry. 
you got to reconstruct it. It's got to be rebuilt. Um, one of the one of the friends I was talking to, matter of fact, a lady in our neighborhood was sharing with me. She said it's like <clears throat> she said you know it's like we have a bank account. And that bank account is way overdrawn. They took everything out of our bank account, and and it's way in the red. So when they start making deposits, it just takes a while. And there have to be a lot of deposits made, but I have to accept the deposits. I can't say, I'm not going to take those. You have to start receiving new deposits, and it takes time. But I'm going to commit to be open to that and allow that to happen, and it won't be perfect. Hey, again... I know for some of you this is very personal, this is very difficult. All of us have either been through it or know someone who's been through it or don't know it and somebody's going through it right next to us, okay? That's just a hard truth, whether it's been adultery, whether it's been an addiction, uh, whatever the situation. Can I tell you, God is not asking because he's a mean God for you to consider taking these steps. He's doing it because it's what's best for you. It's the only way to life. Several of you could stand up and give testimonies right now. Some of you could say, I'm still on the ground, I can't get up. Some of you could say, I was on the ground and I just, I just quit and now it's over. I want to tell you today, it's okay to be on the ground. It's okay to wrestle. But God wants you to get up. And here's some practical steps to begin. And if we can help you, we want to, we've got some good counselors here. We want to pray with you. We'll help you in any way. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ. We want to invite you to consider doing that. Uh, right after this service, right outside that exit door in our welcome room, there's some folks that would love to talk to you if you're open. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together this morning. God, thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Lord, I pray that you give us clean hands and clean hearts, that you give us insight to our sins so that we may confess it and bring it before you. Lord, for those who need hope, Lord, I pray that you grant them hope and strength and comfort this day. And Lord, we give you this time. In your name I pray. Amen.